0: Welcome back, everyone, to the Lead Inclusively podcast series. I'm excited to introduce our guest today. Liz Bowie uh, will be here with us, and she serves on both the IP and Diversity Council for Viasight. She also serves as an adjunct professor and law student mentor right here in San Diego, where where we hail as well. Uh, Most notable to me is Liz's fascinating path. As a child, she came to the U.S. as a South Vietnamese refugee. And from there, she's built a very impressive career and a very fulfilling life that she is hopefully going to tell us a bit about. Liz, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for the kind words and that introduction. Uh, So, yeah, I'm glad to be here, answer your questions and, uh, you know, share my experience, my story and how that, you know, may help others.
0: Uh, That's awesome.
1: To their, you know, equity, diversity and inclusion practice.
0: Um, So, yeah, let's go. All right, you got it. so, so, as I alluded to in my introduction, your life story is among uh, the most unique I've ever heard. you you p- apparently came to the u s as a South Vietnamese refugee, and I would love it if you would consider telling the audience a bit about your journey so that we have some context for how it informed your life as a as a professional.
1: Sure, absolutely. So um I was born during the war, um, you know, so, the American war, (laughs) as we called it. And so in a very small village, uh, fishing village, um, southeast of Saigon, or what is now Ho Chi Minh City. And, but, you know, the war, we were a bit protected because much of the war did not come down south until, you know, basically when it was over and there was the fall of Saigon in April 30th, 1975. And I, you know, for... All intents and purposes, had a pretty happy childhood, uh, from what I recall. You know, it was I went to school, uh, had brought, you know had siblings and had grandparents that lived nearby, and you know and basically spent a lot of time with my grandparents. Um, my father was in the South Vietnamese Army, so he was not around very often. But I recall that when he was around, he always um, brought us treats. And, you know, in treats, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, For instance, our house didn't even have indoor plumbing or uh, an indoor kitchen, if you will. And so when he came home, he had a motorcycle and he would bring, you know, typical things like fruits. And, you know, that to us was a treat. Uh, And so I always looked forward to those times. And so around the time that we left um, and, you know, as a child, I don't think you really are cognizant of war unless it's really encroaching. Upon you. And so we had, of course, people in the village that would go off to war, but they went off to war. So it was not something that was always present that you saw. Uh, And if it was, it was for the most part, you know, not very, um, our whole life really surrounded around a Catholic church. And so uh, I took my daughter back in 2018, uh, and we visited the village I was from. And it It's a very Catholic village. And so the majority, um, not even the majority, most Vietnamese now are Buddhist or they're agnostic. And so there's a small population, 8 to 10 percent, that are Catholic. And that comes all the way back from when the French basically colonized parts of Vietnam in the north. And so when they were defeated in 1954, this is a bit of a digression but when they were defeated in 1954 uh, there was a period of time where you know they were before they were going to set up the north versus you know in the south southern south Vietnamese government there was a period of time where they allowed the Catholics to flee north Vietnam like a period of 90 days or three months to the south and so that's what my family did in 1954 and so a number of the Catholics from the north then migrated down to the south and still this. In the South, there are still pockets of that sort of Catholic uh, village. And so that Catholic church still exists today. Uh, And according to my sister, it looks very much similar to what it did, you know, 40 or some years ago when we left. And so we were pretty much protected because our life was really surrounding that Catholic church uh, and everyone around us and who, you know, we lived close to all our cousins and all our relatives. And of course we were all Catholic. And so our life seemed pretty normal. So around the time um, that Saigon fell, uh, so that was April 30th, 1975, we were, spo- we were scheduled to be on a boat um, to leave because you know the war was coming, the fall of Saigon was near. And so my father was in the South Vietnamese army. And so we recognized that basically our life was not gonna be probably very good after the war. Of course, i didn't recognize this you know the adults that were in there and so we were scheduled to leave and then you know i don't know what the miscommunication was but we came back to shore so we were actually on the boat had left but then came back onto shore and because i think there was probably rumors that it wasn't going to be as bad or you know that we could still remain whatever the case may be but then all of a sudden april 30th happened and you know all hell broke loose and then it was like people were, it was just complete mayhem. People were running everywhere and trying to get on any boat that they could to leave. And so we were all together, our two families. It was my father and his sister and their, fa- and their family. So my aunt and uncle and their kids and then my parents and the family. But then at the very last minute, my parents decided that they were going to go back to the house you know, instead of hiding out where we were, they were going back to the house to basically get some food or some supplies. And during that time, more, you know, mayhem and more violence broke out and we could hear, you know, basically the war encroaching on us. You know, troops were coming down um, and, you know, there was all sorts of stuff going on the radio. And so my uncle decided that he was just going to leave. There was only one boat left and he was just going to take his family and he was leaving. And so... Our The kids, the buoys, basically there was five of us without our parents. And so we could decide to go with them or we could decide to wait for my parents. And so my two older brothers left with my aunt and uncle and their family. And they left. And my sister, who basically was 13 at the time, had myself, who was about five or six, and my brother, who was about four or five, with her. And so she kept both of us and we were going to wait for our parents. And so my uncle, all, they had all left. And so we were waiting for my parents. And then I think at some point my sister was just like, she, you know, she had to make a decision whether or not she was going to wait for my parents. And we didn't know whether or not they would actually come back or she would leave. And so she decided just to take the both of us um, to the dock. And when we got there, there was another man who was wanting to leave and he had a gun. And basically, he was threatening a boat already out at sea that if they didn't come back and get him, he would shoot it and kill everyone on the boat. So they basically naturally came back to get him. And that's when we were like, you know, please help us out. And so he helped us out by putting us on the same boat. And it just happened to be the same boat that my uncle, my aunt and uncle, their family, and my two brothers were on. So we were all on the first fishing boat very small fishing boat. And we pushed out to sea. And of course, you know, I mean, it was a very last minute thing. None of us had any, I mean, we had nothing except the clothes on our back, Uh, no food, no extra, I mean, anything, you know, I mean, just literally whatever we had. And, um, and we sailed out and I'm not really sure that I, I mean, any of us knew what was going to happen so that it was even a guarantee of a better life. It was just, that was, you know, what it was going to we were out at sea. Um,
0: and what about your parents?
1: And so that was just it. We never saw them again. And, uh, and so, so to, to, this, to this day, Liz? No. So um, flash forward, they came mm. um, like when I was a senior in high school. Um, we had sponsored them through sort of the, you know, family sponsor program. And, but we were out at sea for what seemed like probably one or two days, um, you know, and no food. Um, I remember us being very hungry and very thirsty, but other than that, you know, it wasn't like a very long period of time. Cause I, you know, um, I don't recall that. And then we were picked up because once you got out to international waters, you had all these commercial boats, you know, naval commercial boats and airline, you know, um, whatnot, and from Germany, France, all of them all lined up at international waters to pick up all these uh, boat refugees. And so we got picked up by a U.S. boat. And but there were others. I have relatives that were picked up by a German boat. And still others that were picked up by a French boat. So whoever you were picked up by basically ensured what country you would go to. And so we were picked up on this big, you know, aircraft carrier type of boat. And they, you know, an air, these carriers are huge. And so they put you on like a freight like what they used, you know, to put freight on and off a boat. And so literally they would just put people on this freight and take them off the boats and put them onto the carrier. And there, you know, there was just hundreds or thousands of us. And, you know, and we sailed. Um, I have no idea how long we were on that boat, to be honest. All I know is that there were no bathrooms. And so they had um, put created this crate off the ship. And that was your bathroom, you know, so you can imagine just like, um, you know, just a wooden crate. There was no privacy with some slats and that was your bathroom. And basically, cause there were just, you know, thousands of us. And for anyone who died, they would put be put in a pine box and then, um, you know, pushed off to sea, uh, cause there was no room to keep obviously dead bodies, um, on the ship. And it was a very strange, I think, feeling, um, I think my older siblings realized that my parents weren't there. I was just, I think my little brother and I were just more like, okay, you know, like, this is just another adventure, another day. And there was not really uh, an awareness of when our parents or that our parents were gone or that they would not join us. How, so, how old were you, Liz, Again. Uh, I think it was around five or six. And okay. I say that because we don't really, you know, back then, I mean, they do now, but back then we didn't really celebrate birthdays in Vietnam. And so typically, um, and then they also had this sort of the the South Asian way of calendar, whereby when you're born, you're sort of, you know, you're like already one. Uh, So they count the sort of nine months of incubation, if you will. Um, And so it's just a different and now it's a lunar calendar. So it always kind of changes. But anyway, so at the first of the year, everyone just gets a year older. And so birthdays were never celebrated. And, you know, we were uh, I don't even know if we were born in a hospital. So there's no hospital record of um, my birth. So no one in my family knows their real birthday. And so we got our birthdays when we came to the States and we got to kind of choose our birthdays. And so that's a funny story that, um, so I was sponsored. Uh, we were sponsored the three of us by St. Patrick's parish. So I chose St. Patrick's day. So that's my birthday, but, You know, but I don't really know when my birthday is. And I frankly don't even know. I only know about approximately what year because it's relative to what other cousins were born around the same time or what potentially what other
0: events. Isn't that nice that you don't have to be limited by that? You can just be as old as you feel.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of funny because even to this day, I don't, I'm not very good at remembering other people's birthdays, um, you know, in extended circles because I guess you know if you don't remember your if you don't know your own birthday then you know for whatever reason it just has never been that big of a thing for me but um yeah and so like my sister has memorial day you know one of my brothers is like 4th of July another one has you know so we just chose holidays i guess so maybe maybe someone showed us a calendar that said no school today or something who knows But we were, uh, you know, on the boat and then we uh, basically uh, during that whole period from around, I think, like April to about August, there were two refugee camps set up. One was at Anderson Base in Guam and another was on Wake Island. And so in Guam, they processed like during that whole period from about April to August, I think they processed something like 112,000 Vietnamese refugees. And that's where we were processed. Uh, meaning that's where we actually got our social security number even. Um, And, you know, we were documented and that's where we got, you know, housing and vetting. And really, that was the first time that I had a taste of American generosity and magnanimity, you know, and it was just like, it was tremendous. I thought it was great. You know, I mean, it was just like, uh, again, you know, I'm not, you know, I knew that my Parents were gone, or they weren't there, obviously. But I, I wasn't really cognizant of the fact that they wouldn't join us.
0: So I wonder, I wonder what your fate would have been like if you, if this had occurred within, you know, the past few years, where that that uh, immigration policy has changed rather substantially, in terms of the whole um, that protectionism or that um that sense of you know patriarchal responsibility or humanism seems to have changed a bit.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question because you know back in around the time that you know we immigrated it was so early and that kind of took everyone by surprise that so they called it operation um you know freedom Uh, or right to life or something like that. But later, Carter actually increased the number of Vietnamese refugees he would accept, I think, up to like 40,000 a month. And it was actually very unpopular. So, you know, um, NBC, New York Times had actually, uh, you know, um, stated that I think 62% of Americans did not want the Vietnamese refugees. So that's a pretty high number, but Carter did it anyway. And so you compare that to today's, for example, Syrian refugees, and the flight of so many and, you know, the unpopularity of that is around 40 to 50%. So, I mean, so Americans were actually more opposed to the Vietnamese refugees back, you know, in the seventies than they are now. But of course now it's not just the Syrian refugees, you know, it's in various different countries. Uh, Some of them are fleeing, you know, even climate change because they can't make a living, um, you know. And so there's different forces at play from different countries, different races, different demographics um, and for different reasons. And so it's, I think, much more complicated than it was for, you know, the the situation with the Vietnamese refugees at the time and also coming from a war. And so, you know, we had that sort of um, I don't know if that was a benefit because it was, you know, or not because it was such an unpopular war. Uh, That was probably one of the reasons why they didn't want so many Vietnamese refugees. But on the other hand, it was the same reason why the government allowed so many Vietnamese refugees to come. And so the entire Vietnamese population here, you know, that seeded what is now the Vietnamese American population here in the States was all based on was all refugees. So we weren't immigrants in the sense of like European immigrants or other immigrant groups that have come to the States. We were all refugees. And so that's an interesting, I think, history um, of resettlement, you know, displacement, um, you know, the American dream. All that, I think, you know, uh, is sort a of shapes that Vietnamese American experience a little bit differently than that for other immigrant groups.
0: Did did there come a time, uh, you know, after you got here that you re- you realized my parents aren't here and did that sink in at some point?
1: So, you know, there were so
0: many things that happened. So we went from
1: Guam and then we went to Wake. And then we went to Indian Town Gap. So there were, you know, various different another refugee center. And so the Camp Pendleton, by the way, was also one of the refugee centers. And at Indian Town Gap, we stayed until uh, we were resettled. And so unlike many immigrant groups, and unlike modern, you know, today's modern um, refugee crisis, we were actually settled. You know, the U.S. government took an active hand in actually settling the Vietnamese and uh, together with private organizations, in cooperation with a lot of private organizations, including Catholic charities, um, settled the Vietnamese. So, I mean, we got a lot of assistance in many ways uh, because of that. And so we we stayed in Indian Town Gap until we were sponsored by different Catholic parishes. And so my uncle's family was um, sponsored by Saint Sacred Heart Parish, and then my sister and I uh, And my little brother were sponsored by um, St. Patrick's Parish and then my two brothers. And, you know, the downside of all that was that, you know, it was there was just such an emergency kind of crisis going on. And I think there were five kids without parents. And I don't think any one group wanted to sort of take five kids without really thinking through the ramifications of separating five kids. Um, And so my sister and my little brother and I went with one family, the Vietnamese family that wasn't really directly related to to us. And then my brother, uh, my oldest brother. I'm not exactly sure even where he went. He might have even gone down to New Orleans. And then my uh, the second oldest brother went with my uncle. So we were sort of separated into three different um, households and uh, and did. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And then we came in November. I know that um, because my adopted grandmother gave me a bracelet that says like November 19th, uh, 1975, which was my uh, our arrival, I believe. So
0: November. did you were you uh, what was the when did you first know that your parents were still alive?
1: Um, that's a good question. And, you know, to be honest, I don't actually even remember asking about them think there's just something you know psychologically that you know in order to sort of you know become acclimated and survive I think we you know my little brother and I perhaps just moved on so probably after a number of years when we could get letters I think it was my sister who you know sent word and you know just sort of word of mouth you know can you tell you know if you know such and such tell them that their kids are fine and but to be honest I didn't really appreciate it until we actually started getting pictures. So my parents had two kids in Vietnam because I'm pretty sure they thought that we were, you know, dead or, you know. So, I mean, you can imagine that losing five kids overnight, you know, is pretty traumatic. Um, And so I'm I'm pretty sure they didn't realize that, you know, we were alive. So they had two more kids um, while we were here in the States. And so I recall distinctively getting a little a picture of a uh, my baby sister who was born in Vietnam. Um, And that was when I realized that, you know, that they had, you know, that my parents were alive. And so that's the first real memory that I knew that my parents were alive. But up until then, I'm not really, you know, I wasn't necessarily involved in that
0: what what a story i i am uh, um you know i don't even know what to say uh except that i know that now uh in your current role that you have a diversity and inclusion role and so and and what i'm struck by liz i've been doing this for 25 years you know as a professional um And I consider my knowledge to be very sophisticated, and I'm very focused on, you know, the business impact of an inclusive um, organization. And I have studied... So many different cultures, because I don't don't know if if we mentioned this the last time we you and I spoke, but I before I had a diversity and inclusion firm, I had a cross cultural consulting firm. So very, very, you know, conscious of the cult, you know, the, you know, different cultures and being a global citizen and and interacting as such. And the level of your experience just in your life experience alone so far exceeds mine. And I've lived in five different countries um, that um, I've got to think that there are such significant ways that your life story in, ha, is influencing your cu- current work in a way that other diversity and inclusion professionals may be you know, just, including myself, might might not really understand. And, and are you willing to share a little of that?
1: Sure. And
0: I think that's,
1: uh, I mean, that's absolutely right. I think my life story, my experience informs my diversity and inclusion, and particularly, actually, um, and both in many ways. And so, you know, one of the most interesting things I've recognized, and I'm pretty self-aware, and probably my life-changing event was when Um, There started to be a Vietnamese community in in Nebraska, in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, where we were relocated. And my sister, when she graduated from high school, got a job and she wanted to basically move from where we were, which was not a very um, dense at all uh, area for Vietnamese. She wanted to move what we called then, you know, quote unquote, the Vietnamese ghetto. Because often with many refugees, immigrant groups that come in, they go through, you know, they go through a city and they settle in, you know, places with cheaper housing and whatnot. So and there was a lot of Vietnamese and there was starting to be a Vietnamese church and she wanted to move um, there. And, you know, keep in mind, she's 13. And so, you know, her recollection of her country of origin is much sharper and crisper uh, than my own. And, you know, I mean. English is really my English is my primary language um, Vietnamese is not I speak Vietnamese very um Elementary, um, you know. I mean, I can get a buy, but I can't tell you that I feel melancholy, or you know, or why you know it's important for me to you know what is. I don't even know the word Vietnamese words for diversity, equity, diversity, and inclusion, for example. So it's very elementary. But my sister has you know a lot of that, so she's our family uh, historian in many ways, and she wanted to move to that Vietnamese area, and so she did, and I didn't want to because I didn't want to leave where I lived and my friends, and so my, um, the secretary who was our uh, St. Patrick's church at the time, uh, Mrs. Gordon, um, and her kids. And so her daughter Ann Gordon was very much instrumental in my life. So, Ann taught us English. Um, she was a, a, you know, an elementary school teacher, but she was also an ESL teacher. And so she would come over once or twice a week to our, the place, one of the, you know, kind of foster homes where we lived and would teach us English. And then she would also take my little brother and I out because she didn't have kids of her own and she wasn't married at the time. She would take us out once a week and basically like pretend that, you know, basically just was our surrogate mother. She would take us shopping, you know, we would bathe at our house because our place, you know, we didn't have a very nice bathroom. I mean, she just took care of us like we were one of her own. And so when my sister decided to leave to this Vietnamese area, my grandmother, her mother, Ann's mother at the time just said, Do you want to live with us? And I didn't even ask my sister. I said, Yes. <laughs> I just, you know, and this was at age 12. I made my own decision that I was going to leave my sister and my brother and I was going to live with the Gordons. And so the Gordons, keep in mind, so their names are Homer and Marge.
0: Unbelievable, right? Unreal. Uh, you can't uh, make that stuff up.
1: I can't make it up. And They um, and they were already in their 60s near retirement when I lived with them. But absolutely, I can't even tell you uh, it changed my life because it just gave me I mean, I lived this very middle class life. I went from being, you know, poor and on government subsistence, you know, um, to like living a very middle class life with to, you know, uh, my grandpa was an engineer, and my uh, grandmother was, you know, a secretary for the church, but, you know, both are very well read. All of their kids, um, you know, had gone to college, um, you know, University of Lincoln, Nebraska, or nearby, you know, were professionals, had kids of their own, so some of the grandkids were even older than me, and so by the time I lived with them, all their kids, you know, they had grandkids that were older than me. I mean, it was like Imagine what that takes to basically be in your 60s and all of a sudden take on like this Vietnamese girl. And, you know, and I was, you know, I was kind of a rebel. So I wasn't like this. Certainly, the I was subs- guessing
0: that you were probably a handful.
1: I was a handful and I was a vegetarian right in Nebraska. And so that really, you know, I mean, Homer. that's, was even,
0: that's even funnier from a diversity yeah. point of view.
1: Right. And Homer was very not happy with that. And I mean, there were just all sorts of things that they just did for me that I just think to this very day, now that I'm approaching the age at which they took me in. And I think, wow, I don't think I, I can't do that. I mean, I could. I certainly have the finances if I wanted to to do that. But I don't know if I have the headspace to do that. And yet they did. And so that and that just basically no matter how many times I felt like sometimes I didn't belong, that single act alone changed my life. And the interesting thing was, I mean, they were just we never had discussions of really of race class because they didn't really see it that way. They everything they did was through their actions. Right. And so they took me in uh, and we never you know. And so when I went from there to New Orleans, when I went to go to Tulane, all of a sudden I was in this community where there was an actual relevant and strong African and black community. And I never had that. And but yet there was just so many obvious like differences between, you know, the black diaspora in New Orleans and, you know, where Tulane is, which is uptown. Um, And and so I think I saw quickly how privileged I actually
0: had that. So, I mean, privilege is. an. So did you feel when when you say that? I'm, I'm very curious about this because so you felt privileged as a. As opposed to did you ever feel marginalized as a Vietnamese, you know, who, you know, who wasn't, you know, someone who wasn't Caucasian in the in the area of the country that you were in?
1: Oh, absolutely. Because I was often the only, you know, person of color, let alone Vietnamese, you know, in um, my high school, you know, all that. And I th- absolutely. But I think I just did. Um, I think the Gorns did such a great job at acclimating me. And there wasn't I did not have this awareness until much later of being Vietnamese and trying to be my authentic self. I think back then it was very much like I'm just going to be as white as I can be,
0: <laughs> you know. So you were you were at least aware that. um that there was some sort of a difference based on the, you know, the color of your skin or your facial facial features or whatever it is that, that you you were you picked up on that. And is that because it was overt or was it subtle or what what was it like?
1: I think well, I mean it was both. You know, I mean, so children, I mean, you know, they always say racism is learned. And so, like, you know, we would go to church and we would you to know, school and you would hear things like, you know, kids would say, you know, uh, horrible derogatory terms like chink or whatever. And, you know, and what always kind of made me laugh was the fact that I'm not Chinese. And so it's like even the wrong derogatory word for it. Um, but, you know, you would hear those sort of things. But it, it just it didn't bother me that much because it wasn't that frequent. And then I always came home to Homer and Marge, who never demonstrated any of that. And so, um, yeah, that must must have been confusing, I I would think. It is confusing. But to be honest, I think just I think when you're young and having had that background, you just you're so resilient. You know, they always say and, I, and people say now that kids are very, you know, children are resilient. It's the adults that become that you are afraid of, <laughs> of how that, you know, that childhood uh, trauma comes back. But, yeah, I mean, definitely the feelings of being an outsider. But then there were other things that I maybe did that, you know, perhaps, you know, compensate overcompensated for it. Um, but um yeah, I you know, and I, I still have good friends from that era that, you know, that I still work and talk with. But but I think also, you know, I recognize that what I had, you know, whether or not it's luck, hard work or whatever, you know, it was at first, you know, an earned privilege. But then the harder I worked and the more success I had and the more luck I had as well, because I, you know, was Opening, you know, I my mean, luck is a part of like coincidence and it's also a part of how, you know, you put yourself in a place where you're open to some to receiving some of that. And I realized that, you know, that I've actually had many privileges. And in many ways, my experience in the Vietnamese refugee experience is so much better and so much more. Ri- I mean. Um, privileged so much than it, for many black Americans.
0: And so I, how would how would you this is this is a good segue, I think, into your work and and also just what we're experiencing right now uh, at this unique moment in time in the United States where, you know, uh, I guess it was Will Smith who said that, um, you know, racism is not new. It's just being filmed. Um, but um This this whole so for example everything from the term people of color which some people object to significantly to the black experience to the brown experience to the I mean, um and you know sometimes it feels like uh, there's more discrimination you know from 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 the gradation of the human skin you know from you know say your color to a dark you know a darker brown to a to a black I mean. As a diversity and inclusion professional, what are you experiencing right now and how has your past influenced the the way you approach um, diversity and inclusion in the workplace?
1: Right. So I think, you know, let's just go back to, you know, the definition of privilege. So, you know, a lot of people describe it as an, an advantage that a dominant group has over a marginalized group or that a certain group Um, advantage of a certain group that others do not have. And I think that's a little bit too, you know, black and white, if you will, Um, because, you know, it's not, I mean, because I feel privileged, you know, uh, sitting in this chair right now, I have, I feel privileged and I have a lot of privileges and, you know, some of them, you know, early on, um, they were definitely earned, but I can't really say, and I can be aware of this, that even now that somehow they're unearned because of you know uh you know decades of sort of like success and building on what i have so much of what i receive now is not necessarily earned it's because of you know where i sit in the so- socio-economic ladder where i sit because of my education with my jd and my phd where i live here in solana beach you know in this sort of affluent enclave you know very isolated in a- many ways and so they you know these are the There are unearned privileges. Yes, I earned maybe to get here because I worked hard, but much of how people receive me, you know, is not And yet. I'm not part of that dominant group. So I think that I don't so I don't really like that definition that somehow you're pitting, you know, the privileges of a dominant group to that of marginalized groups. Because I think even if you start out as a marginalized group, you can earn those privileges can be quickly become unearned. And I think people have to recognize that. And so I think, you know, there's many of people of color that should recognize that. And that's why I think we need to sort of support each other. And it shouldn't be, you know, who's playing, um, you know, a race down to the bottom with regards to, you know, who needs our help. I think everyone, you know, I think we can all help each other. Because certainly someone like myself, I mean, like I said, I feel like in many ways, you know, learning more about, you know, Black history here in America, you know, we got better benefits and treated better from the U.S. government than um, Blacks did when they got freed. Right. So in 1860.
0: Very true. In in terms of your particular wave of immigration on an emergency basis. Yeah. In
1: 1863, Lincoln emancipated the slaves. But yet Texas still had them until June, right, Juneteenth of 1865. And then, you know, the whole 40 acres and a mule. Well, that never, you know, that was just a myth. You know, I mean, slaves were supposed to, you know, supposedly be granted 40 acres and a mule. And that never occurred, uh, really. And so, I mean, they weren't resettled. um, You know, they weren't given a home. They weren't given government subsidies. um, You know, they I mean, it was just and yet I had all that. I was resettled. By the US, you so know? you're
0: seeing you're seeing you're seeing this. This is very interesting. So you're you're seeing diversity not necessarily as as a reflection of the color of someone's skin. You know, talking about racial and ethnic issues right now. Obviously, we're not talking about gender issues or um, gender spectrum issues or or uh, disability or any of the other number of things we could be talking about. But specifically in that regard, you're you're sort of focusing on. Um, you know, the access, right? So access to education, access to capital, access to love and safety and what have you. And I think that, and you're I think, first of all, you're very astute to point out the difference because you're absolutely right. And it it went further than that, right? It went to, um, you know, everything from, you know, Uh, in terms of the black population peonage, uh, you know, you know, putting black people in jail for the same offenses that, you know, people wouldn't even look at a Caucasian um, person about or um, you, know, um, you, know, uh, you know, you know, redlining, you know, you know, deciding who would get mortgages and wouldn't get mortgages. And and all of this has a uh, an exponential effect. Right. It's like a, a boulder that's just rolling downhill that gains momentum. And um, so I think it's it's very astute not to lump um, people in the in the same category. Um and to, and to, and also the humility to say that, that given what you experienced in terms of your, you know, your, your flee from Vietnam, your, you know, the, the fear that, that you went through the separation of your family, that you can still recognize that based on your access to education and, and safety and so on, that you were able to achieve some of the things that you achieved. I'm curious because you and I have this in common too, as you know, what, what made you go get the JD?
1: Oh, that's interesting. So, um, you know, growing up in Nebraska, um,
0: you know, there's very few
1: things that, you know, you think you can be and, you know, teacher, doctor, lawyer, engineer. Okay. There's like four careers. (laughs) Uh, And so when I moved to California, it was was just like, you know, there was just an amalgam, right? There's Hollywood, there's media, there's just a lot of people doing a lot of things that, you know, in my Midwestern background and upbringing, I just had no idea that people could make money doing that. And I think, you know, what's clear to me, and what rings true with all my, um, you know, philanthropy and uh, volunteer work is socioeconomic, it was really about financial independence, And I just knew that, you know, I don't have a net. There's no, you know, there are no parents. And uh, even though my parents came, they were very poor. I put myself through school. There's no, you know, there's just, there's no net to fall back on. So I had to be obviously financially independent, uh, independent on my own. And frankly, after the PhD, I just really did not like the bench research. I liked all the synthesis and I liked reading and I liked putting it all together to make the story. And so um, and here's another thing with regards to privilege. So I was dating at the time, uh, you know, my then fiance and we went to a family wedding, his sister's family, um, his sister's wedding. And I met a family friend who was a patent attorney. And who was a big lawyer at a uh, Fulbright and Jaworski, which is a Texas based firm, but had offices downtown L.A. And he's and I just told him that, you know, I'm trying to figure out what to do now with my Ph.D. Because you get your Ph.D. and people don't really tell you that you can do other things with it. They just, you know, because your own principal investigator, your own P.I. went through academia. So that's what you do. And that's what everybody does. And this is just the, the nascent start of biotech. And so he said, why don't you just, you know, work for me and you can, you know, I'll train you how to be a science writer uh, and work in patents. And so I did. So I was working full time at a community college. uh, But then on my days off, I would go there or after I taught there, I would go uh, past downtown because I lived in Venice at the time. On the way home, I stopped downtown and work a few hours and learn. And I just loved it. I was like, oh, my gosh, you get to learn so much science, be on the verge of like, you know, always learning, you know, all this innovation. And yet and I could learn, and I could synthesize, I could read and I could just, you know, put it all together. And I realized that's really kind of that's, you know, I don't know if it's my calling, really, <laughs> but I enjoyed that. And so that's what naturally led me to basically pursue a JD. And then I moved from there to Oppenheimer, Wolf and Donnelly, where they actually had a full sort of technology patent agent training, you know, official program. And they also paid um, us part of the tuition for us to go to um, law school. And so that's how I took advantage of that. But you know, consider that, you know, again, meeting that family, you know, in my earlier life, you know, I mean, how many kids that don't have an education and you know don't put themselves or even don't basically have a fiance whose family, you know, is a Jewish American and you know grew up very well to do in the valley, how do you put yourself in a place where you actually need a patent attorney? You know, and so the critical thing that I see about access is that kids And, you know, young adults, you can't be it if you can't see it. And so what has really informed all my philanthropy is how do I give kids access to people like me, to the life sciences? Because, right, I mean, I work in the life sciences here, you know, in San Diego, which is a huge, really rich environment. You know, it's a financial engine here in San Diego, but yet it has left out so many Uh, popular people in San Diego that don't even know about it, you know, don't even recognize it in Southeast San Diego. And so how do we, you know, they don't even have biotech classes. And so one of the things I was, was, you know, was basically intent on is bringing biotech and, you know, bringing that learning to a group of students, to a a group of uh, demographics in San Diego that wasn't aware of that. Because you can't really, and so diversity I see is long-term and short-term. So the long-term goal is you basically have to have talent, a talent pool in which to recruit from, okay? But you can't, you know, bellyache about that talent pool if you don't do the initial work early on. And that initial work for me early on is, you know, at the high school level. How do we get them interested in STEM? How do we get them interested, you know, how do we get them to, to and then, you know, but you have to build that. And you have to get in front of them to say that, look, you know, look at me, you know, if I can do this, you can do this. And, you know, for many of them, you know, they're the first to go to college. And so, I mean, it's one thing to go to college, but it's quite another to figure out what you're going to do right after. You know, like that. I mean, so and all your parents didn't go to college. All they can get you to is to college. And they can't necessarily advise you and mentor you with regards to what you do after that. And so we need people to get out there and just to, you know, to get in front of these kids to show, you know, what that access and that access and those opportunities really look like.
0: Yeah. To your point, you can't do what you can't see. Right. Right. Um, So. So (laughs) let me let me ask you. So. So now now I'm getting it right. So, you you know, you go from you go from uh, first of all, what was your Ph.D. in again? Uh, Sal and I. um, Electron cell biology and okay. cell biology. All right, so that's the that's biotech. Then working yeah. on patents and then going to be a patent attorney. And so the what was the transition from from patent attorney to diversity and inclusion professional? Like how did that happen?
1: Yeah, so I'm still a patent attorney for the company. And how that happened was basically uh, our um, CEO at the time at Biasite, we kept on having these conversations during the whole, you know, this, the whole groundswell of um, activism that occurred this year, particularly, of course, the Black Lives Movement. And, And, you know, and he and we just had a lot of discussion. And so we would have these conversations of like what that really means. First, you have to be aware. Uh, you have to be conscious about it you have to reflect and then you act uh, and sometimes you you know a lot of companies will act without having done the work you know of doing the actual the awareness and the reflection and that just usually doesn't turn out very well and so I was very I was very strong about that and a lot of that it just comes from the fact that you know I've quote unquote, I have street cred because I've I've volunteered with so many different populations. Right. And all my life here for the past 30 years, starting at Tulane, you know, I don't just, you know, volunteer by writing a check. I actually volunteer my time because it informs me because when you volunteer with your time, you're in people's where they live, where they go to school. It changes you. Right? It's not this sort of like you write a check and you don't know what happens to that check, right? You just look it up and see, make sure that it's a good charity with a good charity record and number. But when you volunteer, you're physically working with these individuals and these populations, with these kids, and you're in their home, whatever that looks like, right? I mean, I've built homes in Tijuana where basically they didn't have a home. They were, you know, sharing, you know, uh, uh, mud floors and basically, you know, garages that were recycled for roofs and walls and, you know, and I just can appreciate that if you at least, for example, in that instance, if you can have shelter and if you can have your basic things, then you can start worrying about education. But if you don't even have basic, you know, things such as shelter and food, you can't really start to think about education. So, I mean, thinking about education is just even a luxury. So how do we get there? Right. And so I've been doing this for 30 years, just, you know, working with various groups, particularly a lot with the homeless. Yeah. During my time, for example, with Father Joe's Villages, um, and I just worked amongst really good people and just, you know, and and I enjoy just working with our, if you will, our neighbors, our need, our customers. And, you know, the kids at Toussaint, um, you know, I'm pretty close to this one um, kid at Tucson who basically just defended his thesis at UC Irvine. And I've known him and his sister, him in particular, since he was 14 years old uh, at Tucson Academy. And, you know, and basically he graduated from UCSD, uh, just defended his thesis from UC Irvine, got married um, to uh, actually a Vietnamese doctor who just graduated from UC Davis. And it just is like that to me, it's like that's the impact I have,
0: Uh, you know, and I can see that. So so so, is, is it safe to say then that um, the, you know the transition to or, or it's not really a transition because you're still a patent attorney, but the focus on diversity and inclusion within um, via site. So the where you are right now is kind of the connection uh, between perhaps diversity and philanthropy. Um, So it it so the the journey has been more of a community outreach, more of a uh, trying to um, increase the diversity of your uh, recruiting pipeline and so on. So is it is it do you anticipate that maybe in this next phase of the development of the company that you'll um, also be moving towards an examination of. Uh, inclusion in terms of whether the organization is meeting the needs of its employees in terms of an inclusive environment? And if so, what are some of the steps that you're going to take to make that happen?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think and the company is very receptive to that. And, you know, senior managers and leaders are very receptive to that. And so when I started, I think one of the first things that for me, it's um, I have a hard time convincing people necessarily through just words alone so I always try to do it by example and so one of the first things that I did was I rebooted what we already had we so we had a culture club um, at Biasite but it um, you know but it was kind of just languishing for a year and you know we hadn't had merch from them and so in the pandemic and with you know the ability I, I sort of reorganized it into an employee our first employee resource group. And on there, I recruited um, people, and then others those people recruited other people from different departments. So we have representatives from clinical, from manufacturing, from facilities, you know, legal, uh, finance, HR, uh, and various different groups to basically participate and take the lead in the various different programs. But I- Programs Such as every Monday, we have 15 minutes of Monday morning mindfulness and someone volunteers to lead, you know, basically the group on Zoom. It happens every Monday at 830 in meditation, you know, uh, stretches or yoga. And so, you know, and then we have once a month, we have what we call lunch and learnings. And the lunch and learnings is everything from a podcast on based on science. Uh, This recent podcast, for example, we had uh, a young lady in the company. Lead us on uh, uh, profiling, for example, three persons of color, scientists, female scientists, who contributed significantly to the impact of how we think of science, uh, and you know the way science is done. And that was one podcast. And we did, I did a podcast, for example, back in September on voting, uh, trying to get reg- people registered voting and understanding voter suppression and how it's affected and disenfranchised certain populations. And so we also those are lunch and learnings, but we do also uh, things, for example, we. We onboard people through that as well. We do excerpt interviews. Uh, we also have, like, for instance, Diwali, our uh, vice president of clinical development, you know, uh, gave us a little sort of info on what Diwali is and how it's celebrated. And then she taught us a, a an Indian Bollywood dance. And, you know, and so... You know, there's certain things like that. We have a book club. We also have, you know, uh, sort of an opt-out side where people share their biking adventures. Uh, we had something for Veterans Day. We have two veterans, um, um, both actually are um, Black Americans in our company, and both were veterans, and they shared with us their veteran experience. And so, what I'm trying to do with inclusion is I'm trying to allow people to be heard. Um, and so, it's not just the managers who are always talking and um being the spokesperson but it's allowing people but uh, but allowing them to be heard and to be seen in the way that they want to be seen you know to be to bringing their you know because inclusion is always about engaging and bringing your best self to your work and you get more out of people and it's and but it started with me and so i would say that it took me this long at biocide after 12 years to bring my full self to work and i feel like more than ever this is who i am. I mean, Liz, you know, the IP council, I mean, I was, I'm very good at my job and I did it, but I had this entire whole life of philanthropy outside of my work that I never brought to work because, you know, like many uh, people and not just persons of color, you know, I I think it affects everyone and particularly women, you know, we just sort of put them into separate buckets, but now I'm bringing all that to my work to do the, you know, the equity, diversity, and inclusion. And so it's very important to me that people feel that they belong, uh, that they truly belong, and that they're being heard, that we're hearing, you know, from, you know, clinical managers, to, you know, facilities people, to manufacturers, to a lot of people that, you know, otherwise probably would not um, get the FaceTime, and people heard from, in other ways. And Zoom has helped us with that, right? So there's an intimacy to a lot of this digital uh, thing that occurred when we started all working from home. And it's odd because it used to be we'd have company meetings and our CEO would stand at the top by the podium and then everyone else would be in the back. And so most of the senior managers would, would sit in the front and everybody else was behind us. So we couldn't really see them. But now on company meetings, you see everybody displayed. And so there's a certain
0: intimacy to that that you didn't have before and that and any an almost what? right you can't tell by the tiles on your screen you know who's more important than anyone else
1: absolutely and in fact if i'm interviewing someone i have to move them to the front so that i can figure out where they are because every time someone pops up they get moved right and so and there is an equality to that and it's uh you know it's a little bit more egalitarian and, you know, and also with the chat, people can use that. Right. And so it in many ways, it's actually improved our culture and it's allowed people to step up um, and, you know, and do things that they probably didn't feel like they could do before. The reflection and the action. But the Culture Club, I think, you know, we started that in September and for the past four months, I think it's really helped our culture, Uh and you know onboarding people and making f- people feel like they still you know a sense of belonging or at least i hope and that's some of the feedback i'm getting back
0: <laughs> all right so in closing cuz i see that we're we're at the end of our time here is there is there any question you'd like to ask me or any way that i can support this journey that you're on
1: yeah what i really you know i think when i started this dni practice um I'm, I'm probably using the word wrong practice. As a lawyer, I tend to use that word, you know, commonly. Uh, but when I entered this space, there were so many thought leaders, including yourself, that just gave me time. And that was really the nicest. I just reached out randomly on people to like 20, you know, D&I um, thought leaders and just asked them for like a meeting and a Zoom. And I would say that 15% of them returned my call. And that's essentially what I. I mean. I know I could do it. I just wanted to learn some of the best practices and how people were thinking about this. Uh, and I've never been one to completely just follow in someone else's footsteps, so I knew I would do it in my own way. But I just wanted to hear, you know, what people were thinking, how they were doing, you know, what the engagement numbers are, um, you know, how should I measure my success or the success of any program? And so the more I talked, and then I also got, you know, the uh, certification from Cornell. And that helped as well, establish some of the background and, uh, you know, just kind of a standard. But so thank you to all the, you know, thought leaders out there who gave their time. And I think that's really, you know, and that is part of the inclusion, you know, work is by giving yourself and sharing that knowledge base. And so I really appreciated that. And so, you know, I, you know, I've done that with all my mentoring, but uh, but I appreciated it, particularly now when, you know, I'm sitting in different shoes trying to learn a different, you know, um, area. And so that's been great. And so I would say um, that's been the the nicest surprise of this whole thing.
0: Well, I think you're right that uh, a lot of um, diversity and inclusion thought leaderships, they, they come to the table with a generosity of spirit you know, that comes from abundance instead of scarcity. And that's, you know, you're, you're probably naturally attracted to people like that based on your own personality style and, and life experience. But I want to just say this has been one of my favorite um, podcasts that I've ever had. Uh, and thank you for enriching my life and the life of our listeners. And um, I hope I get to see a lot more of you. <laughs>
1: Yes, thank you so much, Denise. It was a pleasure.